Hello and welcome to another episode of African Joe Paddy. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Staffordshire. Today, we will be asking the question to achieve the vision of a conflict, violence-free Africa. Should African government consider negotiation or dialogue with violent non-state actors such as terrorists? Hello, my name is Dehia Belhabib and I'm the co-host with Ife uh, on African Geopardy and I'm recording from Vancouver. This topic is really important to me. I grew up in Algeria uh, during the Black Decade, which is a decade of terror, so I can't wait to learn from our guest today. So before we introduce our guest, I'd like to sort of give some insight as to why this topic is relevant. According to Tony Penn, all wars represent a failure of diplomacy, or in this context, the unwillingness of states to negotiate with non violent non-state actors, such as terrorists. Keeping in mind the often cited mantra, we do not negotiate with terrorists or we do not dialogue with, with terrorists. The question that we seek to answer in this episode is, should African leaders consider negotiation or dialoguing with terrorists as part of their counterterrorism strategy in order to achieve the vision of a conflict violence-free Africa. And we have a very important person to discuss this topic with us, which my colleague, Dr. Bel Habib, is going to introduce. Yes, I'm super thrilled to introduce Dr. Akinola Olojo. And I apologize, I know that I'm not pronouncing the O very, very well. Uh, he is a senior researcher in the Transnational Threats and International Crime Program in Pretoria in South Africa. Uh, before this, he was a visiting scholar at the Institute of Political Studies, Sciences Po, uh, in France, in Paris, and also a visiting research fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism, ICCT, in The Hague. He has a PhD from uh, the Université de Paris Descartes and is an alumnus of King's College London and the African Leadership Center. And I'm very thrilled and excited to have him today with us on African Geoparty. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Akinola Olojo, for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we're just going to delve in into the discussion to ask you, what do you think? I mean, should African government consider negotiating or dialoguing with terrorists in order to achieve this vision of a conflict, violence-free Africa? Uh, thank you for the question. It's a very relevant one. And um, it's one which, um, you know, it's really, you know, exciting to explore. My simple response is yes. But then, of course, it requires a bit of explanation. But let me start by saying that um, I'm a huge fan of chess. Uh, I know for some people who play chess, maybe you play chess, I'm not sure. But if you know someone who plays chess, um, chess is a game of strategy. Um, it's, it's a game of, of battles as well. You have battles involving you know, your pawns, your knights, your bishops, your rooks. You, know, you have ultimately the battles involving the queen and the king. Now, when your king is captured in a battle in chess, it's game over. And it's also what we call checkmate. Now, 
chess is not just about battles. It's, it's a game of timing. And for me, normally, you know, I play, <laughs> I play what is called bullet chess. I don't have time for those long chess games. So I play bullet chess. You know, you have this one-minute games. And within that time frame, you are expected to achieve a superior advantage against your opponent. Now, failure to achieve that advantage means there will be consequences. So, in other words, chess is also a game of consequences. Now, as the battles in the game of chess build up, you know, just as you have battles in real life, you know, battles involving states and terror groups, when they build up, you know, they become protracted and they become what we call uh, you know, a war of attrition where neither side is winning. And then you end up losing your pieces, you know, you're losing your time, you're losing your strategy. It's becoming unreliable, you know, while you're playing chess. And ultimately, you reach a point where there is a stalemate. And in the real world, we have, you know, the military strategy, which a number of countries, you know, use uh, in their battle against terror groups. Uh, you have timing involved in more than a decade of struggle against terror groups like Al-Shabaab, like Boko Haram. Uh, we have seen real consequences, just like chess. But the difference is that in the real world, uh, you have consequences in terms of lives being lost. Uh, we have seen how, of course, the predominant strategy of states has also become increasingly unreliable. And it's because it's heavily anchored on the use of force, on military might. Now, I said yes to your question, and it's because we've actually reached a point where there is a stalemate and neither, you know, neither side seems to be winning. States are not winning the battle or the war. Neither are terror groups winning. All we see is a war of attrition and we're seeing losses on both sides. So I would say yes, that it's a point where it is worth exploring the option of dialogue. But because dialogue is such a sensitive uh, issue, it's one which is very uh, complex. So it requires a bit of unpacking. And I'm sure as we move along, uh, you may have a few more questions that will require me to explain what it entails and what is at stake. I really appreciate um, this response because we often hear we do not negotiate with terrorists from all over the place, including in, in Algeria where I grew up. But the end of the game, um, the closure of the chess game, it was the country was successful in defeating terror after 15 years, not only a decade. Um, but the end of the game was an actual negotiation strategy, which they called, the government called the um, um, uh, national amnesty, basically, amnesty social, meaning that we could forgive you um, if you surrender and you give up, um, you give up or you, you give in, basically, and, and you give up your colleagues or your fellows, whatever you call them, uh, back in what we call the Maquis. So it was a huge negotiation game, actually. We just called it something else, and it appeared to be something else. But at the end of the day, it was actually negotiating with terrorists, because at the end of the day, giving up, you know, like we're, we're offering you something in return that we're willing to basically let go. Like you, we're offering you your freedom in return if you give up your, your arms, if you give up your weapons and, and you come back, basically. And that was, to me, um, and this happened in 2001 and then 2002 after the Algerian government decided that there will be a vote um, and people voted overwhelmingly for it. I wouldn't know whether that vote was trustworthy or not, but we all think that it has actually contributed into solving the issue 
Um, of course, we had to live with the consequences of that, obviously, seeing terrorists in the streets, peaceful, <laughs> if you would call them, peaceful yeah, terrorists yeah. in the streets, and they had the same rights and the same obligations than um, any other citizen with no punishment whatsoever, but that was the consequence or that was the implication of the, that negotiation game. That's how I feel about him. I might be mistaken. This is absolutely not, not my most comfortable suit, but that's what, I, what I've been actually seeing. And I completely agree with that, that at the end of the day, if there is no negotiation, then there will be only victims down the road. Indeed. Um, I think it's, it's a very important um, context in Algeria, which you mentioned. Um, I think the problem we have is different countries have uh, you know different uh, circumstances and you know the terror groups they may share you know an ideology that cuts across you know these countries but then it's also about understanding what is happening within those countries and the timeline uh, in terms of the conflicts in in those countries also matters so maybe i should just take us through a, a few facts i think it's good to start with some data because one of the things which people struggle with when we talk about negotiation or dialogue it's always the question of um uh, how do you start uh, you know these guys you know these terror groups they aren't you know willing to compromise and and what you just said you mentioned that some form of negotiation took place in algeria and there was some kind of compromise that, that also occurred. Now, according to the Global Terrorism Index, you know, which is a report published yearly by the Institute for um, Economics and Peace, the latest report, which was published uh, December last year, actually lists you know, uh, you know, the top 10 countries affected uh, globally by terrorism. And we have a number of African countries. Nigeria is among them. Uh, Somalia is among them. And then, of course, you know, the, the report also mentions uh, countries in Africa that are most impacted by terrorism, you know, from Kenya to, again to Nigeria to Somalia to Mali, you know, and even the DRC. And then the report goes further to mention the four deadliest terror groups. Um, we have Boko Haram among them. You know, it's been like that for, you know, for a number of years. Now, we've seen that these countries affected have also, like I mentioned, been using military might to try and address this problem, but they've not really been able to produce the results or, you know, the results which communities are yearning for have not been, you know, you know, been, you know, been coming out strongly. So we're seeing, you know, a repetition of the same process year in, year out. Um, we've seen that in the case of, uh, of Somalia, for instance, where we have Al-Shabaab, uh, the group, in spite of, you know, airstrikes, of course, by the U.S. and, uh, you know, the government's efforts to try and degrade or to, you know, degrade the capacity of the group. We haven't yet seen the group affected. The group still is able to launch attacks, even in the capital city, Mogadishu. So it raises the question of, okay, what else? And then we've also seen the presence of the African Union mission in Somalia. You know, it's been there for a number of years. Uh, we've seen as many as 22,000 uh, uniformed personnel at some point, you know, at an annual cost of around, a, you know, 1 billion US dollars. You know, that's a huge cost. And then you have the question of how sustainable is that financially? Because most of the funds coming into these missions uh, come from outside Africa. 
you know, they are from the, you know, the European Union or from the US. Mm -hmm. um, African countries do not have the capacity, or even if it's, it's there, it's not yet, uh, you know, being used, it's not tapped into. So we've seen this situation play out. Uh, we've seen in the case of the Lake Chad Basin, where you have Nigeria, um, as many, arguably as many as 100,000 have, have been killed over the last decade. And 100,000 is more than the size of, you know, you know the national stadium in Abuja, which is the capital city of Nigeria. I mean, this is even perhaps more than, you know, the stadium of some countries, like even France, the Stade de France, for instance. You know, so we're talking about the stadium of dead people. And this goes back to the question of consequences. Now, if you look at the U.S. airstrikes, for instance, especially from um, mid-2017 to mid-2019, the U.S. conducted more than 120 airstrikes. And yet we haven't seen the results in terms of, you know, you know lasting peace. Um, the leaders of these groups, which is another dimension, if you go back to um, 20, say 2014, for instance, uh, someone called Ahmed Godani, who was the former leader of Al-Shabaab, who was reportedly killed by a drone strike. In spite of him being killed, Al-Shabaab is still thriving. Uh, if you go back to 2011, we all remember what happened when Osama bin Laden was killed. But Al-Qaeda is still there, and its affiliates are still expanding in Africa. If you go back to 2009, Muhammad Yusuf, the first leader of, of Boko Haram, was also killed. But Boko Haram is still there. In fact, Boko Haram has a breakaway faction, which is known as the so-called um, Islamic State West Africa province. And it's thriving. You know, so we, we see all these things happening. And even the most recent one last year, October, um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the former leader of, of, of Daesh, he was also killed. But ISIS is still there, you know. So we see these things. The evidence is there. It's so clear. And let me just mention that you know, just to end this, you know, with the data aspect, there was a yearbook, you know, a report published by, uh, you know, it's called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute just last year. And according to their statistics, 43% of terror groups that existed between 1968 and 2006 were actually brought to an end as a result of dialogue and negotiations. And compared to 7%, that were ended due to military force. So we can see the disparity in terms of the two approaches. This is the data, we can't argue with the facts, you know, but in the reality, of course, how do we implement this? Um, I don't know if you want me to go into the, you know, the framework, or maybe you want to ask a question, frame it in a different way, I'll be happy to explain. So I, I, I would love to see the framework, but I have one burning question, actually, and I don't know if she has another one. Um, probably she has a, also brilliant questions like me. Um, what are the consequences of those examples that you mentioned that was like the lack of, um, of dialogue? Um, what were the, the consequences of that lack of dialogue? Do you have any statistics? And although I, I really don't like talking about statistics in terms of like people's deaths, but what are the consequences of the lack of dialogue actually? Okay, it's, it's a good question. I think okay, for us not to, um, let's not bore the, the listeners with so, so many figures. Yeah. <laughs> what we'll do, I'll put it this way. Now the consequences are playing out right before our eyes. We were seeing, like I mentioned, uh, you know, the fatality figures rising. Uh, on, on a near daily basis, we hear reports of people dying. Um, in Nigeria, in Somalia, 
in Mali, in Niger, in Cameroon, in the DRC, and now most recently in Mozambique. And I'm sure you know, a lot of people are following very closely what is happening in Mozambique. Now, across the continent, and even if you go up you know, North Africa, of course, it may appear as if you know, things are simmering down, but then you still have you know, the, uh, you know, the affiliates of, of some of these groups, for instance, in, in, in the Sinai, you know, in Egypt, you, know, you have some of them in Libya, you know, and, and so on. So these are the consequences of the lack of exploring an approach that entails talks. Um, we have seen countries like the US uh, over the last one year exploring dialogue with the Taliban. And may I remind us that the Taliban, according to the Global Terrorism Index, uh, is you know, listed among the four deadliest terror groups. At some point, it was the deadliest. And in spite of that, we've seen the US engaging the Taliban in talks. And we've also seen how complex that process has been because dialogue doesn't come easy. Um, these groups have been there for a while. The Taliban has been there for a very long time. But the US realized at some point that uh, after 17, 18 years of you know, engaging in you know, warfare in Afghanistan, there is no, you know, there isn't a, you know, a serious, a real turning point in, in terms of, of peace. So therefore, the option that lies on the table is to engage in talks. And like I said, it won't come easy. It's a process. And it's one which should not be seen as a sign of weakness. Because one of the assumptions people have or states have is that, as, as Dr. Efe mentioned earlier, is that when states say they do not talk to terrorists or dialogue with terrorists, it's, it's, you know, it's always because they want to be seen as in control. And that when you talk to terrorists, it's always because you are weak. But that's not true. It's a fallacy. And I'll prove it to you. In 2015, when Boko Haram in Nigeria seemed to be on the back foot, you know, it looked like Boko Haram was about to be defeated. And it, it also looked as if all that was required was a final blow to end, you know, the, the group's existence. And at that, at that point, you know, even the president of Nigeria, Muhammadu Buhari, actually announced that Boko Haram was technically defeated. You know, but this is five years after 2015, we're in 2020. And the figures show, the reality shows clearly that Boko Haram and its breakaway faction are still very much active. You know, so that idea of uh, waiting for groups to be on the defensive before you initiate or explore talks, it, it, it doesn't work. Because when you think, uh, you know, when states believe that the groups are on the defensive, that is when they actually feel the need to continue with the use of force and to end things. But then these groups work in cycles. You know, they rise again and then they have a time when they reinforce themselves and then they go on the ground and then they resurface. And that has been the endless cycle. So the consequence of a lack of negotiations or some form of exploration of the idea are these problems we are witnessing today. Mm -hmm. Okay. So actually, you've, you've made a lot of very important points. And I have a, a kind of follow-up question from the one that was asked by Dihia. And this is a question that's currently ongoing, a boiling question, especially in the Nigerian community where we know that Boko Haram and the likes of Iswap is raking havoc. And so the question is, should negotiation work or should dialogue work, for example? How then do you manage the whole idea of rehabilitation 
and reintegrating the terrorists? Can they actually genuinely be reintegrated? And are there positive examples you can share with us and our listeners? Okay, I mean, like you rightly said, it's a burning question. It's one which is also evolving as we speak right now. Um, there's a lot of debate about why are we trying to re reintegrate former violent extremists into communities where you have uh, internally displaced persons in thousands, people who, are, who have their livelihoods you know, destroyed while they are still there. Why then? Why are you bringing in former violent extremists? Why are you even spending money on them? Why are not? Why are you not trying them in the in, in the courts? Now, I think we need to look at this, you know, in in, in a way that, um, you know, it's it's difficult to start comparing, making comparisons with, for instance, uh, a case where somebody uh, maybe commits a crime uh, like stealing, maybe armed robbery, uh, and then is tried in the courts. We do have cases, there are a lot of cases of former, uh, you know, people who are accused of terrorism, who are being tried. There have been a series of trials in, in the case of Nigeria that, that you mentioned, uh, dating back to 2017. Uh, there have been terror trials, which although have not really been uh, conducted under very, you know, perfect or good circumstances, but then there have been trials nonetheless. Um, there are those who have renounced the ideology of these groups and those who have um, gone through a rehabilitation program and who have been um, uh, brought into communities or, you know, there's a process of trying to reintegrate them. Now, while that debate is going on, we need to ask the question of if we... What were the circumstances that led to them joining some of these groups? There were those who joined um, not because they chose to be members of Boko Haram. There were some who were forced, you know, some were abducted, for instance. There are cases where people were actually taken from their communities wholesale and were forced to be members of Boko Haram. They didn't do it by choice. Um, there are those who joined willingly. And of course, I don't think all of them are placed in the same category, even when it comes to the trials. There are those who committed real crimes and who are being tried. But there are those, of course, who need to be identified, uh, you know, maybe those we call low risk, for instance. Like I said, those who were abducted and forced to join. So those cases, of course, need to be looked at, you know, in, in, a, in a nuanced way. Um, we, we, we cannot um, say that, okay, because, um, uh, be, because these people are brought into communities, therefore they will just simply join, you know, rejoin these groups. I don't think it works automatically like that. The risk is there, yes, but then there must be some form of safeguard. And this is where policy needs to get it right. This is where, of course, local community engagement and consultation comes in. Now, the authorities will be making a mistake if they simply think that they can reintegrate this former terrorist or formerly accused, uh, you know, members they need to engage communities and consult them then they have there has to be a process whereby communities are prepared and the mindsets as well as the resources and even the livelihoods in place need to be prepared for proper reintegration to be you know to even be successful hmm. it really reminds me of actually how things were done in algeria because i was there and i was living there at the time and there was no such a process and 
I would say that there is an entire generation in Algeria that suffers from PTSD because of the Black Decade. Um, and just the idea and the thought that those people lived with us, there was absolutely no such process. And I think it was a huge mistake. Um, we had to interact with these people. They did not undergo any sort of reintegration, any sort of um, education, any sort of, you know, I, I don't even know how to, what, what would be the proper terminology to define what they should go through in order to be reintegrated into the communities. I don't even know that we were actually, uh, it was a matter of choice or the lack of choice thereof, so of desperation. The fact that people said, yes, we're going and we're willing to forgive. But I don't think that communities have forgiven their, their lost, the, you know, have forgotten their lost one or have forgiven the, the criminals for that. And these people came back and these people, I, I had to interact with one of them uh, who happened to be the brother of a mayor, actually. The mayor was an, an amazing person. I had nothing to do with his brother. But, yeah. uh, you know, you see them walk in the streets and you see them given rights that other people did not necessarily uh, have access to, such as, for example, free housing, um, employment, you know, like the employment rate in the country is, the unemployment rate is massive, is really high, and these people could just come down, and, and we say come down because they used to live in the mountains, uh, come down and get a job and get a free, you know, free apartment, for example, rent free, and just roam freely there was no integration but beyond that it really fostered fostered a sentiment of frustration beyond the ptsd but you know like the people that have lost someone the people that have yeah. witnessed something and so i think those processes as you said like and thank you so much for saying that are really important if negotiation there will be um it doesn't seem that it doesn't it doesn't mean that people should go unpunished for the crimes that they have done and i'm speaking about this in my own biased perception of things um, but I think that the process of integration has to be comprehensive and communities have to be involved. Yeah, I, I agree with you. you see, when, we, when we talk about um, dialogue, I think we also need to look at it not only as a process, but also in a, more, in a very comprehensive way. So it's not only dialogue, exploring dialogue with terrorists, but also dialogue with communities, dialogue between and among communities actually. Dialogue between religious groups, because in Nigeria, for instance, you have uh, a huge percentage of Muslims and then a huge percentage of Christians, you know, living side by side. And when terror, you know, terror attacks happen, there's always a fallout, you know, an impact on the inter-religious dynamic in the country. Um, when we speak of dialogue, we also need to look at dialogue between communities and governments, you know, the establishment of trust. Uh, something which you, 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 you just hinted at. Uh, now, this entails, a, it's a very comprehensive, also an expensive process. It's one, it's one that requires uh, you know, multiple layers of engagement. It's also going to be one that requires training. You know, it's an entire national project, if I can put it that way, you know, depending on the country. Um, dialogue also in terms of, I mean, um, I'd like us to do, go back to uh, what happened with the Chibok you know, abduction. We all recall in 2014 when uh, over 200 uh, no, young girls were abducted in, in, in Chibok in Nigeria. And part of the process that led to some of them being uh, rescued was the, you know, it was because of some form of negotiation that took place, you know, 
And it wasn't something that just happened, you know, out of the blue. You know, when you look at even cases, you know, isolated cases of people who have also been abducted, you know, beyond the Chibok abduction, or even in the case of Somalia, where you have some, you know, cases of, of maybe former members, high-profile members or leaders of, of Al-Shabaab, for instance. There are instances where some form of negotiated, uh, you know, some form of nego negotiation, excuse me, took place. You know, but most people just hear dialogue and they just close their minds and say, okay, no, that is not possible. We don't, we don't want to entertain. These people have killed, uh, you know, so many people and therefore, uh, you know, nobody wants to, to even consider that comprehensive approach. So the local context is there, community engagement. Communities understand these groups more than anybody else. They know who precisely to engage, who to talk to. Members of uh, the family, the family members of some of these terror group members, some of them can be engaged. There are ways to go about this, but you need to go through communities. There are cases where uh, you also have to uh, establish, uh, you know, those who are going to be, uh, you know, the third parties, because obviously the governments and the terror groups, I mean, it's not going to be an easy process for them to simply start talking. Um, this has been tried in the past. It's not something very easy. So there might be an instance or the requirements for third parties, you know, or third, you know, entities, you know, go-betweens. And it has to be a mix of individuals and a gain from the communities. You know, it also has to be in phases. You know, you have to involve not just family members of militants, but also religious, uh, you know, entities. For instance, Islamic clerics to some extent. Um, mediation experts need to be consulted. Women groups need to be consulted. Traditional institutions, clan representatives in the case of countries like Somalia, civil society organizations, even youth organizations. It's a mix. And the reason why it has to be a mix of individuals is because the various categories of people I've mentioned possess varying levels of influence and awareness, you know, of knowledge on these issues. And that has to be coordinated in terms of phases. Now, one issue we'd also need to be considered, because I'm going into the stakes involved now. Mm -hmm. There is the role, of course, of um, uh, the consensus, even on the part of governments. A lot of times when governments try to explore dialogue, as we've seen maybe in the case of Nigeria, it's not because the terror groups didn't want to talk. It's often because sometimes even within the governments, there isn't a common vision in terms of what the talks will entail. And when the talk starts, it often falls short because different groups within governments are not on the same page in terms of what exactly the outcome of dialogue will be. And this has you know, been one of the reasons why uh, you know, this hasn't worked. In the case of Somalia, there, there are political divisions between the central government and the regional states. And this has eroded the political will to even explore dialogue or talks in the first place. So a lot of mistrust, a lot of you know, the lack of consensus has been one of the problems. But if that can be established you know, incrementally, it will go a long way in um, uh, sort of contributing to you know, establishing, you know, this, this whole process of dialogue. Um, I don't know if you want me to go further with two more points, but I, I, could, I could wait to hear from you if you, if you want to seek uh, more clarity. No, please go ahead. Okay. Now, I suggest 
that there is a need for a communication strategy. A dedicated commission should be established and tasked with developing a communication strategy. So, for instance, in the case of uh, uh, the Lake Chad Basin where Boko Haram is active, it's necessary that the countries affected, Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, Niger, need to have a formal, some kind of coalition, not just in terms of a multinational joint task force, which is already in place, but a kind of strategy that is you know, anchored on communication. So we, we need, uh, you know, a, a maybe, maybe not just your task force, but also a kind of um, commission that will be able to divide into phases of engagement this process of dialogue. If you look at countries like Colombia, now between 2012 and 2016, dialogue between the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia and the Colombian government, it took, you know, it took place over a period of four years. It didn't happen all of a sudden. There were stages involved. So I think when we look at dialogue, it also needs to you know, involve that division into phases and involving those countries affected. Now, finally, it is important to recognize the role of regional and global stakeholders. I mentioned earlier about how um, the, the use of airstrikes uh, by the U.S. has been counterproductive. Now, when we look at the role of the U.S., I also talked about how the U.S. has also played a role in, uh, you know, engaging in talks with the Taliban. Mm -hmm. In the case of Africa, although African states must inspire this process of dialogue, they must be the ones leading and owning this process. But it does not mean that external actors or stakeholders cannot play a role. I think it's, 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 there is room for global uh, cooperation. Terrorism is transnational these days. It's not something which one state can, can address alone. So the U.S., for instance, or the European Union has the convening power. And you know, I'm going to be very specific here. Just last year, I think around September, we had uh, the U.N., um, General Assembly, and there were, you know, there were so many side events on terrorism and all these issues. And, you know, even the office where I work, the Institute for Security Studies, we actually had, you know, you know, a representation at one of the side events, you know, and we saw the convening power of not just the U.S., but also that space where, you know, so many actors were brought together to discuss this issue. In terms of facilitating initiatives for preventing violent extremism, this is where external actors can also contribute. Uh, we've seen, of course, the U.S. mission to the African Union uh, contributes to the convening of workshops in West Africa. Um, we've also seen, uh, I mean, there's also the need, of course, for capacity enhancement uh, in regard to mediation expertise. I mentioned mediation and dialogue is an expensive process. So this is where global cooperation, regional cooperation can play a role. And I think, you know, collectively, a lot can be done if we look at it this way. Okay. So thank you so much for those points. And, and actually, I feel that it's, it's a very important sort of clear strategies or outline of how it should be done moving forward that you've laid bare for us. But I wanted to understand, in case it's not clear to our audience already, whether the actual argument is that we should have the use of soft power or secret negotiation in this sense, if we want to use diplomatic terms, 
in tandem with the use of hard power, that is military might, we, it should go hand in hand with secret negotiations and dialogue and not that we are actually advocating for just dialogue on its own. Yeah, that's a very important point. And I thank you for raising that. Actually, the main argument of this whole idea, or it's really about exploring dialogue as part of a comprehensive counterterrorism approach by states. So what you've said really hits the nail on the head. It's not about throwing out of the window military force. Um, it's not about discarding the utility of, of the armies that are already doing a great work. I mean, we must give credit uh, to the AMISOM. We must give credit to the Multinational Joint Task Force. We must give credit to the G5 Joint Force Sahel. But then, simply because the problem itself is multidimensional, by logic, it requires multiple levels of management. And this is where approaches like dialogue can contribute, can complement can be considered alongside the use of force. So where you have cases of terrorists or leaders of these groups who may not want to relent or compromise, um, there are those who are willing to engage in talks. There are those who are probably looking for a window to engage. So this is where dialogue can be explored. And we've seen the case of, uh, uh, you know, the, the case of, um, of, the, of the president of Mali who about two weeks ago uh, you know, was talking, made a formal announcement about exploring dialogue. But then, of course, we've also seen uh, the response of, of the groups involved, and uh, it wasn't quite positive. But then, like I mentioned, it's a process. It's a difficult one. It's a sensitive one. It won't happen overnight. But then I think it's one which can very well complement the existing approach. Hmm. Okay. Bihia, do you have anything to add before we round off? I'm actually amazed by the discussion that we had today. Right. <laughs> my, my take on it, yeah. Okay, so um, thank you so much for listening. I would give you um, the final say, Dr. Olojo, but from our part, um, I'd like to say that obviously this is clear that um, achieving the goal of silencing the guns is, is definitely not going to happen in 2020, but this is an aspiration that is great and something that is going to happen. But it means that African governments should be open-minded about exploring other routes of which negotiation or dialogue with terrorists or violent non-state actors could potentially take us a step closer to silencing the guns in the continent, hopefully by 2063. Um, Dr. Um, Olojo, I wonder if you have a final say for our audience, or what do you have to tell us? Yeah, thank you. I, I think you've actually summed it up um, perfectly well with what you just said. Um, I would just say that I think we have an opportunity in the present day period to actually silence the guns even before 2063. Um, it might sound a bit too ambitious, but I think if we have that common vision, if we have the focus and if we have that comprehensive outlook in exploring approaches that are not just anchored on the use of force, approaches that are linked to criminal justice, approaches that are linked to dialogue, approaches that are linked to addressing governance gaps and plugging them, approaches that are linked to engaging women, youth, religious actors, um, civil society organizations, and a whole range of societal 
uh, entities. If we have this outlook, I think ultimately we will be making a real contribution in terms of silencing the guns even before 2063. Failure to do this means that we can spend the next decade struggling against violent extremism and getting nowhere. So I'll end it there. And um, I'd like to thank you for uh, another opportunity to, to explore this question and also to just simply brainstorm uh, around this issue. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Olojo, for making it today. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you so much. I want to re-echo what Dihia said. Thank you so much for being part of this. And to our listeners, we want to thank you for listening. And we also want to thank you for sharing. And yeah, if you have any question or comment, you can always leave a comment um, on the page or on our Twitter. Thank you so much and take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.